We're going to pray. We're going to ask that God would help us to understand. And then we're going to have a read through this letter um, together. But let's pray uh, and ask for his help. Father, thank you for all we've been singing. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for the truth that we've been singing. And we pray now that as we unpack your word together, that we would hear your Holy Spirit's voice, that he would speak to us as your word is read and preached, that we would listen and hear the voice of the living God this afternoon. We believe, Father, that you are God who speaks. Lord, we long that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Brilliant. So I'm going to read the whole of Philemon. Uh, We're going to spend the next eight weeks looking at the book of Philemon, which you may look at and think, that's a a long time to spend in Philemon. Uh, We're going to know Philemon well by the end of eight weeks' time. But sometimes it's good to take our time going through a part of the Bible to get to know it really well. And there's loads and loads that we're going to discover and learn together. What I'm going to try and do today is give a bit of a, an overview, kind of, a, 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 of some of the big themes that are going through. And then over the next few weeks, we'll pick them apart um, and, and go quite into detail in some of them. But we're going to read it. Uh, before we read it, let me explain who the main characters are because it will help you to follow the story. Uh, Paul, the man who wrote this, is the great apostle uh, who was Jesus' enemy, who met Jesus on the Damascus Road. He was transformed and Jesus sent him out to preach the gospel all over the place. So that's Paul. Um, Philemon lived in a town called Colossae, uh, which is famous because the letter to the Colossians, which is also in the Bible, was written to that place. So Philemon lived there. He was obviously a fairly well-to-do chap and... At some point in the past, he'd met Paul, and he'd become a Christian. But Philemon had a slave, and the slave's name was Onesimus. And Onesimus had stolen some money from Paul and, uh, from Philemon, his master, and had run away. That's bad. And while he'd run away, he bumped into Paul. Paul was in prison, and Onesimus has become a Christian. And Paul is now sending Onesimus back to Philemon. That's basically what's happening just so you know who, who the names are. So here we go. Let me, uh, let me read it, um, and then we'll dive in. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. 
but I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, at first sight, I think this is pretty weird that this is in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is quite weird, right? It's a, we sort of get the... Old Testament stories, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing we'd expect in the Bible. Uh, we expect some stuff about God. We expect some doctrine, some truth. We expect stories about Jesus. But a personal letter between one man and another. I mean, what possible? How is that God's word? And how does that even begin to relate to us? So Paul is writing to Philemon. How can that be important? Well, let me just uh, make a few comments to, to help us get our bearings. Um, and it helps us to understand actually what the Bible is, what we have in front of us. And the first thing I want to say is just three kind of comments, uh, preliminary comments, if you like. Uh, the first thing is that the Bible is written to real people in real situations. I think sometimes we treat the Bible a bit like a fortune cookie. You know, you know the fortune cookies where you break open the cookie and they've got a fortune inside them. A thing, a piece of paper, and it tells you that you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger. And we sort of like, we sort of do that with the Bible. You know, we kind of, we open it up and we go, oh, what does God, what's this say? And we pick out a verse at random and it's about rock badgers and we think, well, I don't know what that means. And we sort of imagine it's kind of irrelevant. The Bible doesn't work like that. The Bible was written specifically to real people in real situations. Philemon makes that really clear. There was a man called Philemon and there was this situation with his slave Onesimus. This was a real thing that was going on. And Paul writes to them in those situations. Of course, that matters because when we read the Bible, our first job, therefore, is to work out what did it first mean? Not, right, what does this say straight to me? But to work out first and foremost, what was it first about? What was Paul saying to Philemon? If we can understand that, it will help us to understand how it applies to us and what it means to us, how to, how to understand it ourselves. Because otherwise we read Philemon and go, well, I don't have a runaway slave. I mean, perhaps if one of my children runs away, this might take on some relevance. But, I, you know, no, there's, what we've got to understand is what is it that Paul is teaching Philemon in his situation? And that's actually a really important principle all the way through. You look at what God was teaching to the people that it was actually written to, and then what did it say to us? But we'll get to that in a second. So that's our first job, is to work out the original situation. 
But the second preliminary comment is that it is written for a wider audience. So even in this letter of Philemon, you can tell that it's meant for more than just Philemon. Perhaps. If you look closely. And if you know a little bit of Greek. <laughs> Which I don't. Uh, have a look at verse 3. In fact, in fact it's, it's obvious in English in verse 2, so let's do that one. Have a look at verse 2. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. This letter was to be read to the church, not just to Philemon. In verse 3, grace and peace to you. Oh, actually, you don't have to know Greek. It's okay, because there's a little footnote. Look, there's a little A. That tells you to look at the bottom of the page. This is helpful. Uh, At the bottom of the page, it says the Greek is plural. Also in verse 22 and 25. In other words, Paul isn't saying grace and peace to you, Philemon. He's saying grace and peace to you, church. It was written to the church that Philemon was part of. Now that's going to be important because if if Philemon's going to have any hope of welcoming this runaway slave back, he's going to need the church involved. This is going to be a whole church project to love this servant back. Well, do we know anything about the church? Well, actually, we do. Like I said, this is the church of the Colossians. And in fact, this is where it's quite fun, if you like this sort of thing. You can begin to piece together some different things about what was happening. So keep a finger in Philemon and come with me to the book of Colossians. You know all the list of random names at the end of the letters? Just sometimes they are, there's things in it that make you go, oh, that, wow. Have a look at this. I'll show you what I mean. This helps us to piece together what, what probably is going on. So look at the very end of Colossians, chapter 4 of Colossians. Oh, sorry, it's page 1185, if you're struggling to find it. Page 1185. In fact, just at the bottom, 1184, it says, Tychicus, final greetings, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. So there's this, so Tychicus is obviously coming, carrying this letter to the Colossians, right? He's a dear brother, a fellow minister, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage in your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that's happening. So what we're being told is that Tychicus and Onesimus are travelling from Paul, probably in Rome, in prison, and Paul's written a letter to the Colossians, and he said to Tychicus and Onesimus, can you take these letters to to Colossi for me? And Tychicus has gone, yeah, that's fine. And Onesimus has gone, no, really, that's not fine. Paul, this is not a good idea. The penalty for running away as a slave was death. Onesimus is like, Paul, I'd like to stay with you. It's nice here. And so Paul writes Philemon and sends it with Onesimus. So Onesimus and Tychicus, they're carrying the letters to Colossae and the letter of Philemon and they're heading back to Colossae with these letters, okay? And my guess is that Onesimus thinks that Philemon is a really important letter. And we don't, you know, you could just imagine Philemon seeing Onesimus coming and Philemon going, is that Onesimus? And him going, it's my letter, I've got my letter, it's okay, read this, right? That's the sort of feel of what's going on here. 
Oh, someone's keen to get in. And so, and even then, if you compare the list of the, the, the names um, of people um, between the end of Colossians and the end of Philemon, you see that they're all they're, they're the same people. Mark and Demas and Aristarchus and Archippus. They, they, it's the same people all mentioned. Because this is, these are written at the same time, which means that the letter of Colossians will probably help us quite a lot with the letter to Philemon, because presumably they'd have been read at the same time in the church. Okay? So it was always intended for a wider audience. Uh, third thing. Don't worry, if this feels quite technical, uh, that's okay. You know, sometimes some background helps. And uh, as we push into the book, we'll, we'll see what it means for us. But then I want us to say it's not just written for Philemon and not just written for the church then, but it is written for us. God's intention in, in including this letter in his word was that he said, this is a letter that my church for all generations needs to read. In other words, there's something contained within this letter which is not of just a temporary nature for the people then. It is something that is of lasting significance for the church. That's what we need to work out and find. So here, here's the letter, okay? Here's this, uh, this short little letter written. Right, let's get to the big thing. This is, this is the theme that I think we're going to hear over and over again as we go through this letter. Paul is appealing to Philemon to act on the basis of love. So just have a look down at verses 8 and 9. I think this is absolutely key. Therefore, Paul says, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, I could lay down the law, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to act for love's sake. I want love to control and to dominate the way that you respond, the way that you act. Just think about that little phrase, for love's sake. My guess is that well, all of us make our decisions for something or someone's sake. I wonder what goes in that blank for you, for blank's sake. Why did you come to church today? You don't have to answer out loud. <laughs> Why did you come? What is it that is the controlling, dominating, driving motivation? Why do we do the things that we do? Why did you choose to talk to the people you spoke to before church today? What is it? For what's sake are we choosing? I think there's a number of op- options. I think um, one big driving motivation often for us is for guilt's sake. I wonder how much we do for guilt, so we do it because we feel guilty. I think I spend a lot of time doing things that I feel bad about and I feel like I ought to do. Guilt is all the, la- is all the language of shoulds and oughts. You should do this and you ought to do this. And we've all found ourselves acting for guilt's sake, at various times. This is the world of rules. A world where we feel obligated to act. A world where someone gives you a birthday present and your automatic reaction is, oh no. Now I'm going to have to find out when their birthday is and, and give them a present back. 
That's guilt. Obligation. And Paul says, I could have, I could have given you, I could have guilt-tripped you. But he says, I, 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 no, no, I, I'm not interested in that as a motivation. For the Christian, guilt is not the primary motivation for our action. Okay, so uh, perhaps another force blank's sake might be for convenience sake. I just want an easy life. I just like things to be straightforward. I'll do whatever is easiest. I'll do whatever causes me the least stress. That might be some people. Or what about for, for profit's sake? I'll do what kind of works well for me. I'll do what enables me to gain what I want. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is a big one, isn't it? When the alarm goes off tomorrow morning for you to go to work and you lie there in bed and you think, shall I get up today or not? Shall I go to work today or not? Let's be honest, often it's, well, if I don't go to work, I'll lose my job and I need the money. And if there comes a point where you don't think you're being paid enough, you'll stop going to work because it's not worth my while anymore. So you act for profit's sake. You act for what you can get. Just imagine, right, uh, for a second. Let's, let's paint those, those three very quickly. Imagine a church dominated by guilt. What would it look like? Where all of us spent all our time saying, I should do that and I ought to do that. What would be lacking in a church like that? Joy. Yes. There would be no joy. It would be a miserable place. It would be a... We'd be pushing ourselves. We'd be working as hard as we could. And when anyone asked us to do something, we'd kind of go, oh, okay. Yes, all right. We take on too much stuff. The preaching loads people up with burdens. There's expectations. And no one can be honest. No one can say, I'm really struggling. No one can say that because you, because you, you gotta, you gotta do your job. You gotta carry on. A church that's dominated by guilt would be a horrendous thing. And we've got to watch out for these motivations. A church dominated by convenience would be empty most of the time. Because let's face it, it's not very convenient on a Sunday afternoon to think, oh, excellent, I can go to, get on a train and go to church this afternoon. Right? It's costly. Convenience, hmm. A church where it's all about profit and gain is a church where your, your, your constant question is, is this doing anything for me? Is this working for me? Is this suiting my needs? Is this, my, this isn't meeting my needs. I'm going to go somewhere else and find another church because that might meet my needs better. Do you see how these different motivations end up with different churches? I want to try and... What with the whole point of this book of Philemon is this, right? Here's my big sentence. and I, You will probably hear this every week for the next eight weeks because I want us to get this in our heads. Gospel love will push you further and take you deeper than you ever imagined. Gospel love will push you further and take you deeper than you ever imagined. That's what I want us to get hold of from this book of Philemon. Let me just carefully unpack that for you. Right, gospel love. We need a definition of love, right? So, 
I mean, everyone talks about love. There's, there's so much to talk about. I, you know, I use the word love in all sorts of different situations. So, you know, I love ice cream and I love my children. I don't think that means, I don't think that's the same. You know, one is far more important. Uh, and there's lots of talk of love. And I think particularly in London after the terrorist attacks, hasn't it been interesting? Lots of talk of love. You know, the hashtag turn to love. You must have seen this all over the place. It was huge. Hate will, hate will lose, love will win. But what do people mean by turning to, turning to what? what? What do people mean when they say turn to love? What is that love that they're talking about? Have you thought? I think it means, as far as I can work out, it means solidarity. It means being one. It means being kind to one another. It means mutual respect and tolerance and love for one another. A love of unity where we care for each other. And I want to say to you, that is a wonderful, good thing. And when our world says we want to turn to love, we should say, yes, amen. But that's not this love. That is not the love that will push you further and take you deeper than you ever imagined. That's not the love here. The love here is something different. The love that Paul is talking about here is not defined by an abstract concept of, yes, we should be united in one. It is absolutely defined by one person. The love Paul is talking about is defined by Jesus Christ. It's all about him. Did you notice how this letter is just full of Christ? He keeps talking about Jesus. He describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He talks about grace and peace from Jesus. He talks about Philemon's faith in the Lord Jesus. He talks about everything we share in Christ. He talks about being in Christ. It's all Christ. Jesus is everything. You want to know what this love is? It's defined by Jesus. Because Christ is the great definition and expression of what Paul is talking about. It is not mutual love and acceptance. It's not a love that seeks common ground. It says, come on, we're basically the same. Let's just love each other because we're basically the same. There's more that unites us than divides us. That's the, that's the good love, but not the great love. It's not a mutual love. Okay, get this, right? And I, I realise it's a, it's a warm afternoon, but try and get this. It's not a mutual love. It is a unilateral love. That's what makes it so extraordinary. That is... Unilateral basically means it rests on the actions of one, uni, right? only one. This is a love that entirely rests upon Jesus. Here is, right, okay. Yeah, I told you Colossians were important. Just flick back to Colossians again for this last time we'll go there um, for today. Colossians uh, chapter 1 and verse 21. Because remember... They're hearing these two letters alongside each other. Okay, so it's not kind of... These two letters are designed to go together. Look what Paul says, how Paul describes this in Colossians 1.21. And here, this is the love we're talking about, right? Once, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, 
without blemish and free from accusation. Right, here is the unilateral love of God. There was a time when we were alienated and enemies. We were not neutral. It wasn't that we were neutral, floating around, kind of like neither loving God or hating God. Just I'm just neutral towards God. No, no, this says you were enemies of God, actively set against him in your thinking and in your behavior. Therefore, you are deserving of punishment, certainly not love, but punishment. But here's the love of God, and please get this, because this is going to be so important for the book of Philemon. God made the decision to love you. Even when you were his enemy, even when you were opposed to him, he made the decision, he said, I'm going to decide, I'm going to choose to love you. Let that sink in. Put your name in there. God made the decision to love you. Not by emphasizing how much we had in common, but by overcoming our hatred of him. God did not look at us and think to himself, wow, what an adorable little human being. How could I help myself from loving them? No, God looked at us and thought, what wicked enemies, but I will love them. That is extraordinary love. God's love is not a love that finds us beautiful. It's a love that makes us beautiful. Look, imagine you were going to a, um, a dog home to choose a new dog because you like dogs. And you decide you're going to get yourself a new dog as a pet. And there's all these dogs in the Battersea Dogs Home. I don't know how this works, but let's just imagine it works like this. And you walk in and you have a choice, right? You have the free choice of any dog in the home. What do you do? What is it that you're looking for in your dog? You walk around, don't you, and all the little dogs, you know, they kind of, they do their best little face. I'm not very good at that. I was going to, I can't pull it off. It's just as well I'm not a lonely dog. Um, You see, actually what you're looking for is the one that just appeals to you. It'd be quite extraordinary, wouldn't it, to walk around and go, I'm going to go for the ugliest, angriest, most nasty dog. Not the kind of, because some dogs are so, so ugly that they're almost cute, aren't they? Almost attractive to you. It's like you feel sorry for them. I'm going to go, I'm going to pick it because it's just so ugly. (laughs) But I mean one that has nothing attractive. You know, you walk in, they say, this dog has killed its last six owners. (laughs) Right? Actually, the Bible says that God's love for us is not a love that walks along and says, wow, that's such a lovely person. God's love chooses that which is not lovely. And listen, through Christ, it makes us holy without blemish and free from accusation. It makes us beautiful. So am I beautiful to God? Yes. Why? Because he's made me beautiful. Human love finds things beautiful. 
Even human love within marriage. I married my wife because I think she's beautiful. She's not in the room, so I can say that. I mean, I'd say it anyway, even if she was in the room. But God's love isn't like that. His love is a love that makes us beautiful. His love is a love towards enemies. A love that so loves his enemies that he would send his precious darling son, Jesus Christ, who would give his life. True love, gospel love, pushed Jesus to the furthest extreme, even to give his life at the cross. And as Jesus died, the punishment that I deserve as an enemy fell on Jesus so that God could love me. That is gospel love, right? That's the sort of love that Paul is talking about in Philemon. So come back to Philemon. He says, I appeal to you on the basis of love. I'm not interested in your rules. I'm not interested in trying to force you to obey. I want you to choose to obey. I want you to act like this. Mutual love, that's a good thing. We see that in the world. Gospel love is unique. And it's found among God's people. And when we say for love's sake, that is what we mean. So this love is a love, this gospel love, modelled and demonstrated in Christ, is a love that as we begin to experience and show that sort of love, it will push us further. It will take us to places where we wouldn't naturally go. It will take us into relationships that we wouldn't naturally be willing to pursue. Philemon is being asked to do something which is monumentally hard for him. He's not being asked to just show love to some poor little, oh, poor little Onesimus, have him back. He's being asked, everything in Philemon would be saying, no. He deserves to be punished. And Paul says, you need this gospel love to overcome your natural instinct to hate. Only the gospel love will overcome that. And it will push Philemon further. And we're going to see that it's going to be costly for Philemon to take Onesimus back. It's going to be really painful. And only as I understand how Christ has loved me, will I then be in a position to love in a way like this. So over the next seven weeks, seven or eight weeks, I really hope that God, by his Holy Spirit, pushes us to a a new understanding of what it really means to love one another. And what it means to love others. I mean, that's been Paul's experience, right? So just think about Paul. Have a look at how he starts, if you're back in Philemon. Have a look at how he starts the book of Philemon. Philemon chapter 1. Hasn't got any chapters. Philemon verse 1. Philemon verse 1. Look what he says. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. (laughs) What an extraordinary thing for Paul to say. You see, if you think back to, to Paul's experience, that's, Paul's not always been a prisoner of Christ. In fact, there was a time, the first time we meet Paul in the Bible, he's doing all he can to wipe out the church. He hates Christ. He hates the name of Jesus. He hates Christians. He lives his life on the basis of rules, of what you should do, of what you ought to do. That's how he lives his life. I should do this. I ought to do this. I must do this. He's ruled by guilt and obedience to rules. But then Christ smashed into his life and completely turned him around. 
such that now he can say, I'm a prisoner of Jesus. I mean, he's in, he's in jail, right? So he's sitting there in chains. He's a prisoner of Rome, really. But he says, no, I'm here because of Christ. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I was his enemy. He conquered me. He saved me. He rescued me. He reconciled me. He made me beautiful. And now I'm his prisoner. I'm captivated by him. So Paul, this love has pushed Paul way further. He's acting in a way that his rules would never have made him act. Do you see that? He's been pushed to much, a much further place. In fact, I want to put it like this. Let me be slightly provocative. Um, no, not really. <laughs> I was going to try, but it's not that provocative. Um, if, you, if, you want to, if you want to think how rules work, because we all, we, all, we all have rules. This is a basic rule, okay? a basic understanding. Rules are for kids. Love is for grown-ups. Right? Rules are for kids. Love is for grown-ups. Rules will get you so far. Love will push you much, much further. Just, I mean, just think about that, how, how a parent treats their kids. Right? There's all sorts of rules that I have with my kids. It's really important that I don't... That one of our rules is you don't stick your fingers in the plug socket. That's a good rule, right? Nothing wrong with that. And if, and if I said, oh, one of the rules in our house is you don't stick your fingers in your plug socket, and you said, well, you're very legalistic. You know, you're very boring, aren't you? What's all these rules? Why can't you be dominated by love? I'm like, well, because I don't want my kids to die, right? But as my kids get older, rules, the need for rules is replaced by an understanding, a heart that wants to do the right thing. So it, so it may be that um, you have rules about, you know, not spitting your food at mummy or something, right? At 18, if that is still a rule in my house, listen, you mustn't spit your food at mummy. You sort of have hoped that by then they've understood that they love mummy and they don't want to spit food at mummy anymore. Because love has taken hold. And this is the constant move in the Bible. You need rules because rules are important in their place. But you're driving towards love and being ruled and dominated by love. And once, once the human heart is completely taken up with this sort of love, you don't need rules anymore. We'll see more of that as we go through. If you haven't really understood that, don't worry, we'll, we'll do more on that. But the last little bit of this is it pushes you further and, and it takes you deeper. So just the last little thing I want us to show, see is to look at verse 6 of Philemon. And I want you to see why this is so important. Why what we're going to do in the next few weeks is so crucial for us. Verse 6 says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith... Well, what does he mean by that? Presumably he means you accepting Onesimus back. Right? You're sharing with us in partnership, doing what I'm asking. I pray that your partnership within the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of everything, every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. So Paul says, if you welcome back this slave, you will have a deeper understanding of everything you have in Christ. Do you see that? There's a, there's a link there between those two things. 
And to understand that link between the horizontal love and the vertical relationship with Jesus, you can't distinguish the two. Loving one another is the only way to deepen in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. You will stay a very shallow Christian if you don't love like this. This is why you can't be Christian on your own. This is why it's nonsense to say you can be a Christian without going to church because you will stay very shallow because you never get the opportunity to show love to awkward people who naturally you would hate. (laughs) Which is what we are. Sort of. At least we should be. Because the church community should be so diverse and so rich and so welcoming to people from all sorts of different backgrounds that it... It rubs us up. It makes us feel, oh, I don't really like this. Actually, as you show gospel love, then you go, God, I got a deeper understanding of everything I have in Christ. And that's why if I stand here today and say, do you want to know Christ better? Do you want to deepen in your love of Christ? You go, yeah, of course I do. I hope you do anyway. Well, the letter of Philemon said, then you need to show gospel love. To one another. That's how it works. So we don't come to church just to have my little experience with God and to close my eyes and to say, oh, Jesus, I think you're really, really wonderful. I love you lots and lots and lots. You're, you're fantastic. Wait, wait, wait. And then off we go. Actually, eating dinner together or hanging out together, spending time together, doing life together, overcoming challenges, having friction in our relationships, falling out with one another, that's all part of how you know Christ more. And if we don't ever fall out with one another, and we don't ever push through difficult things, and we don't ever do really tough things together, then we're going to be really shallow. This is not, by the way, an excuse for you all to come up afterwards and say, well, now that you mention it, I have got a few things that we could push through together. <laughs> but there's something of that, right? That's what Phi- As Philemon shows this love to Onesimus, something is going to happen. He's going to have a deeper understanding of Christ than he ever had before. So that's why my, uh, my statement is, gospel love, that is a love defined by Christ, the unilateral love that God has shown to us in Christ, will, will push us further it will cause us to show love much more widely and deeply and hard, sacrificially than ever before. It will push us further and it will then take us deeper into Christ. Take us deeper into understanding who he is. So I, what I wanted to do this week was really just whet your appetite and say, will you pray with me that we would be a church that is gripped by this sort of love? Not for guilt's sake, not for convenience sake, not for not for profit's sake, but for love's sake. Let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that when we were your enemies, when we were enemies in our minds and in our evil behavior, rather than punish us and hate us, you expressed love. You sent your son to die to make us beautiful. Our Father, we pray that we might know that love for ourselves, 
and that we might be a church that is driven by that love, motivated by that love, that delights in that love, that shows that love. And as we allow love to push us, to push us further than we would normally go, that that would then take us deeper into Christ to understand all the good things that we have, what it really means to be loved by him. So, Father, please, we pray you teach us from this book of Philemon. We, we want to learn. We want to love one another like this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.